Hello, I'm Al Dash, and welcome to the 30th episode of Of Interest. Today is Friday, April 16th, 2021, and this week I'm going to share an interesting idea about the power of vulnerability, share an interesting article about how news can deform your soul, and continuing our interesting study of Pilgrim's Progress by exploring the fourth chapter where Christian proceeds to the cross. Just a couple notes up front. First, I'm super sorry for missing last week and having to cancel the podcast and the Q&A. See, I started taking some vitamin B, and for whatever reason, it threw me into a full-blown, depressive, suicidal, altogether bad episode. But once I stopped taking it, it only took a couple days to get back to my usual self. That was scary. I haven't felt like that in a long while, and it was super not fun. But I'm doing a lot better now, so thank you for your patience. But... Once God helped me crawl out of that pit, things actually went pretty well. My new Twitch streams are actually doing pretty good. In the last 30 days, I've reached affiliate, grown in followers and subscriptions, even added a Tuesday afternoon stream where I give a little sermon devotional and then we play a game. I've really enjoyed that stream. Wake up early, head down, write for a couple hours, then preach live for 20 minutes, then play games while chatting with folks online. That That's a lot of fun. I know that if I really want to grow, that I need to add more streams, but the way things are looking right now, they're, I think they're all going to be at lunchtime. The, the folks who want to watch the sermon are available then, and it's time where I'm not overlapping with a bunch of other streamers. But that being said, I might have to rethink the Q&A on Sundays. I've had a lot of people say that it would be interesting to them, but the actual viewership has been really low. I still think it's a cool idea, but maybe I need to change the format or something, or maybe change the time. In Ontario right now, we're in a pretty serious lockdown, and I think it's going to get even more locked down very soon, which means there's going to be a lot of folks stuck at home, unable to go to church, you know, not have a small group, lonely, anxious, bored out of their minds. So I still think that what I'm doing might be valuable, but I'm doing something wrong and I'm not reaching them. So I'd, I'd love to hear what you think about the best thing I could do on Sundays, like, what would you actually want to see? What would be most helpful to you? What would interest you most? And when would be the best time to do it? I really do want to use my gifts and talents to serve you, so please let me know. And for those of you who are wondering, I did finally finish that ministry proposal, and it's up on the website right now if you want to read it. But I got a new issue, and it's something I'd like you to pray about for me. I'm 99% sure that I'm about to be offered a job as a social media guy for a local secular nonprofit organization. And though it looks like a wonderful job and it not only fits my skills and lifestyle and looks kind of really interesting, it also means I'm going to lose a lot of hours that I, I want to spend doing all my Christian ninja stuff. And I know there are zillions of people out there with regular jobs that do ministry on the side. In fact, that's the norm for pretty much everyone who goes to church. They go to church and then they have a real job and they do a ministry on the side. But for me, after almost 20 years of dedicating myself to full-time ministry, it's uh, proving to be a more difficult transition. I want to be in full-time ministry. I want to teach and disciple and mentor and evangelize and counsel. But that maybe, I don't know, is that not where God wants me right now? I don't know. So if you don't mind, would you please pray for me about that? I need to help balance my life. I need to focus my energies. I need to stay healthy. And I need to figure out how to be okay with maybe working in a secular environment for as long as God has me there. Or would if he'd make it clear that he wants me to go a different way. Okay, thank you for listening. Let's get on with the show.
I finished my testimony series last episode, so I'm back to sharing some interesting ideas during this segment, which was what it was originally supposed to be all about. Just something interesting that popped into my head that I've been chewing on for a while and that I thought you might be interested in. And lately, I've been thinking a lot about vulnerability. All throughout my time in ministry, I've been a champion of vulnerability. If you followed my sermons or I've counseled you or you just you just know me, then you've heard me talk about the importance of being vulnerable and you've seen me be vulnerable. In my opinion, vulnerability is the lifeblood of any kind of relationship. In ministry, evangelism, and teaching, in marriage, friendship, and parenting, and this might surprise you also in politics, leadership, mentoring. It's my fundamental belief that the only way those things are going to have long-term, meaningful success is if the foundation of those relationships is vulnerability. Here's what I mean. To be vulnerable, and I mean like the textbook definition, is to be in a place where you are exposed to the possibility of being hurt in some way, either physically or emotionally. You know, walking through a dark parking lot at night leaves you vulnerable to attack. Having a physical or intellectual handicap leaves you vulnerable to being hurt by teasing. If you don't have health insurance or home insurance, you're financially vulnerable. To be vulnerable isn't a guarantee that something bad will happen to you. You'll probably get to your car safe. You know, you'll, your disability doesn't guarantee people are going to be mean. You might go through life never getting sick, never having your house burned down. But that weakness leaves you vulnerable. And it's pretty much always taken as a negative thing, right? Vulnerability is bad. Strength and security are good. The advice given to us is usually to find the ways that we're vulnerable and get rid of those as fast as possible. Put up your guard. Be strong, independent, impervious to attack. Always prepared for whatever's ahead. Be the kind of person that no matter what happens, you're unfazed. You're ready. Those are the kind of people we look up to. Those are the kind of people we aspire to be, right? Actually, in my experience, it's not. In fact, it's actually backwards. In my many years of ministry, one thing I can tell you is that the people who are held in highest esteem, the people that are others are in awe of, that have the highest credibility, that are the biggest voice in someone's life, that are given the permission to say even the difficult things that need to be said, the people that would gravitate towards the most are the ones who are the most vulnerable. And not only embrace that vulnerability, but declare it to the world. We're attracted to the ones who actually work to make themselves more vulnerable. Now, that's crazy, right? What kind of idiot walks down the road yelling, My car doors are unlocked and the spare key's under the bumper! Or starts conversations with, I'm really scared to lose friends and the only way I know how to keep them is to bribe them, so I'll basically give you whatever you want if you just ask. Or starts off their job interview with, Hi, thank you for seeing me. I want to start by letting you know that I'm in a ton of debt right now and you're the only person that's ever called me back. So you could offer to pay me in instant noodles and I would still take the job. Nobody does that, right? Well, actually, they do. I know a whole lot of people who have made it their life's work to declare their vulnerabilities to the world, leaving themselves open to all kinds of attack. And no matter how many times they've been hurt, They keep on doing it. Think about it. What stories have affected you the most? Think of your absolute favorite biography. Think of your favorite play or book or movie. Was it the superhero story of men and women who could think and punch their way through any problem? No. Those are fun fantasies. We're attracted to the strength. We often fantasize about having that kind of power to do the, you know, the comic book hero thing. It's fun to watch. But... 
those aren't the stories we keep coming back to. The ones that come to us at night, the, the books that we read over and over, are about the vulnerable. Those are the stories. They're about the weak, the hurt, the broken, the scared, the oppressed people. The ones who, regardless of all their efforts, or just out of nowhere one day, had really bad things happen to them, or who suffered for a, a really long time, who were permanently damaged, who have these gaping holes in their life that will never be filled, and who've had the courage to be vulnerable enough to tell their story. It's the stories that really don't have that, you know, tied up with a bow, happy ending, right? In fact, some of the most powerful stories, the ones that really stick with us, that we keep returning to, are the ones that they continue to struggle. They trip, they get back up, we, they don't have all the answers, we don't know what the end's going to look like. But by the grace of God, by some miracle, they wake up every day and they keep on going. And not only keep on going, but actually use all those bad things in their life, all the stuff that most people would keep secret, would never tell anyone. And they use that as the bridge, that connection point to affect so many people, including you. Now, my favorite movie is Lord of the Rings. And I mean the whole trilogy. Extended edition, all 11 hours of it. But why? What keeps me coming back? When you think about it, the whole story is just 40 miles of bad road. It starts in this idyllic little town full of wonderful little people at a birthday party. And it goes downhill from there. Death, destruction, danger at every turn, loss, addiction, abandonment, betrayal, and that's just Frodo and Sam. But what keeps me coming back isn't the ending. It's the fact that Frodo and Sam go through so much together. Now, my favorite biographies are probably the ones I've read about Charles Spurgeon. He lived in England during the 1800s. He was like the first megachurch pastor. Now, what keeps me coming back to his story? Is it his successes, all the ministries he started? No. What keeps Charles Spurgeon on my mind was the fact that he suffered terribly for his whole life. See, when he was a young man, early in his preaching career, right when he was getting popular, he was preaching in front of a bunch of people and some idiot yelled, FIRE! And as a result, a bunch of people stampeded and some people died. He was emotionally devastated and that trauma stayed with him his whole life. There were times he was so down, he couldn't even look at a Bible. He would miss a month of services just sitting in his room weeping and broken. Times where he was so weak, in so much pain, physically, emotionally, that he just wanted to quit, curl up, and die. But then, he would get up, he'd keep going, he'd preach another sermon, he'd keep going until his reserves gave out, and he fell apart again. It's those stories, those people, that mean the most to us. The ones, those are the ones that affect us the most, that inspire us the most, isn't it? Think about the people you call or text when you're in a bad spot. Is it the people that have their life all put together, who've never once admitted having a bad day? Or do you call the ones that you know that they understand what it's like to be where you're at, who felt what you feel, who have shared their story with you, and you know their vulnerability? Now, I want to talk about this more next week, but I want you to consider that for a while. The people that, that affect you most, the stories that you the hardest, the ones that, that reach out to you when you're down, they're the ones about people who have taken the risk to share their vulnerabilities with you. What does that mean to you? And what does that tell you about your own vulnerabilities?
This week's interesting article is entitled News as Spiritual Deformation by DJ Murata and it's found on the gospelcoalition.org blog and it's really interesting. The premise of the article is this. The news, as in, you know, all the online TV radio content meant to keep you in the know, informed, all that stuff, you know, the news. It's actually quite damaging to your spirit. The article begins like this. Here's a question to ask any pastor. What's the greatest challenge to discipleship in your church? This is the likely answer. The news. When I press for more details, I hear something like this. People's preferred news source seems to be the most powerful voice in their life. It tells them what to believe about who they are, the problems of the world, who's at fault, and what to do about it. The news has become a lens through which the Bible, the Christian faith, and the local church is interpreted and evaluated. Christians will often agree. Yeah, sensational, heavy news is the problem. That's why I only follow whatever your favorite outlet is. Other people are influenced by the news, but not me. I'm a free thinker. End quote. Now, I can't tell you how many times I've heard that, how much I agree with all that. And I'm, I'm sure you've heard it too. Thousand percent sure you've heard it too. You may have even said it that, you know, sure, all the sensational, heavy political stuff, that's, that's a problem. But I only listen to this outlet. So other people are influenced, but not me. I'm sure that I've heard that from so many people. And I'm sure you have too. But then... The article starts to dig in a little deeper to the premise, right? The first question is, why are people so enthralled with the news? It's depressing, it's horrible to watch, it's just so negative. No one's ever walked away from the news full of hope, thinking the world's a great place, that the future is bright, so why do people keep going back? If you're a news junkie or a Twitter junkie or whatever, what makes you go back? Well, the author gives a pretty compelling reason. You keep going back because you think that the special knowledge they give you, the insight they provide you, will give you more control over your life and the world. As Murata says, it's basically Gnosticism. Gnosticism is a second century heresy that taught that salvation from sin and evil came through special mystical knowledge. Not in the Bible, not from Jesus. The idea is that Jesus was the very first guy to ever figure this out. He attained enlightenment by accessing that special knowledge, and he was just trying to teach his disciples how to do that. So the parallel is that folks who are addicted to the news basically believe the same thing. That with enough knowledge, with the latest story, by listening to enough experts, by being as informed as humanly possible about everything that's happening on planet Earth, they will be able to attain some kind of personal enlightenment that will raise them above all the plebes and fools that aren't as educated and as informed as they are. And when you think about it, that's what the news promises you, right? They'll tell you what you need to know. They'll give you knowledge that no other news service has. Their perspective is the most holistic. Their opinions are the right ones. They'll never lie to you. And if you just keep watching, you'll be the one of the special few who knows everything there is to know. And if you just keep watching, you'll learn exactly how to deal with everything. In other words, you'll be God. But it's actually the opposite of what happens, isn't it? Think of the news junkies you know. Or consider yourself, if you're one of those people who watches a lot of news. Are they happy people? Are they hopeful? Do they seem like they know what's going on and what needs to be done? Or are they people that are full of anxiety, angry at everyone, feel like the whole planet's out of control? It's the latter, isn't it? The author's solution is something I totally agree with. 
but one that I guarantee most people will not do and cannot handle. His solution, surprisingly, isn't to stop watching the news, but to limit yourself to only very, very local news. Only news about people you actually know, that you can actually meet, that you can actually help. Hyper-local news. News about your neighbors, your church, your co-workers, your friends. Because that's all you can handle anyway, and it's things that you actually can do something about. Your friend has a baby. That's news. You can do something. Your neighbor gets cancer. That's news, and you can help. Some friend starts going to church. Huh, that's news, and you can do something about it. How do you find that news? In the paper? Maybe if you have a local one, but the real answer is by talking to people, staying connected, reaching out. Imagine if you took all the time you spend on the news, Twitter, Facebook, all that, and used one-tenth of it to connect with your church family, your friends, your neighbors. I promise you'd be full of news, and it wouldn't depress you. It would motivate you towards loving action. Now, I would love to hear your thoughts on this. I would love it if you came to the live stream Q&A chat show this Sunday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Send me some questions in advance with the Contact Me button or through the SpeakPipe page or the new Discord server, or just save them up and ask them live during the show. I really want to know what you think about this. The last part of this podcast is an interesting study on the classic book Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. Remember, there's a link to this book for free on my blog if you want to read along. This week we're looking at chapter 4, where Christian proceeds to the cross. After all the metaphors and illustrations of the last bunch of weeks as we toured Interpreter's House, it's kind of nice to get to read something that is really easy to understand. Especially if you grew up in church or you know the basics of the gospel. Because, yeah, this is an allegory but it's a pretty familiar one. Christian leaves Interpreter's house and is sent down what basically ends up to be a tunnel with no roof, just walls on either side. There's going to be lots of opportunity to leave the straight and narrow later in the journey, but after going through the wicked gate, which we know represents salvation, and grasping all that Interpreter's taught him, the next part becomes inevitable. I wonder if this is Bunyan's way of fixing the difficulty of separating salvation into into so many parts. Because in reality, it's all simultaneous. God convicts you of sin, you recognize your sin, you repent of it, you ask forgiveness, then immediately you're redeemed, justified, sanctified, all the big words we talked about last time. Your guilt is gone, you have eternal life, the Holy Spirit comes to reside in your heart. Just like Lazarus, you went from dead corpse to living being in an instant. But in the story, Bunyan kind of breaks all those steps up. The conviction of sin comes way over in the city of destruction. Christian goes through a whole lot before he gets to the wicked gate of salvation. And then there's more walking and learning before we see the burden of his sins fall off. And that's the danger of allegory, right? If you push too hard, it falls apart. Whatever the case, Christian can't mess this part up. He is funneled straight to the cross. And the moment he comes to the hill, which we would call Calvary or Golgotha, the strings snap. His burden falls off. And they don't just lie there. They tumble down into the mouth of a tomb and they disappear forever. 
What I want to do is I want to grab a couple parts of the story, just take a minute to kind of mine a little closer into them. First, notice that when his burden falls off, Christian looks up at the cross in wonder, surprised that looking at the cross, this instrument of torture, maybe the worst instrument of death ever created, made him so happy, so free, so lightsome and glad. But as he keeps looking, he begins to weep. And these tears have lots behind them. Of course, they're tears of joy, but according to the scriptural note, this is referring to Zechariah 12.10. That says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him, as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him, as one weeps over a firstborn. So, not only did he weep for gladness, but also out of deep sadness for what his salvation cost. For him, it was free. All he had to do was show up. But salvation isn't free, is it? It cost the death of the most wonderful, beautiful, special, unique, powerful, gracious, kindest person ever to walk the earth. The Son of God, pierced, bleeding, tortured, mocked, so we could be saved. I heard a little while ago someone say that when we talk about the modern equivalent of the cross, you know that whole, what would Christians be wearing around their necks and putting in their buildings if Jesus died today? That some people would say electric chair, right? I've even said this myself. But this guy said, I couldn't be more wrong. The electric chair was designed to kill prisoners as quickly as possible. It was considered a more merciful way than using cyanide gas or a firing squad or hanging. That is definitely not what the cross was for. The cross was designed to make death as painful, degrading, torturous for as long as possible. People would hang on these things for days, all sorts of parts of them nailed to the chunk of wood, not just hands and feet, gasping for air as their own weight choked them. Jesus had already been beaten severely and was bleeding for walking over half a kilometer, so that's why he died more quickly. In fact, the word excruciating was invented to describe what happened at the cross. Ex meaning thoroughly, cruciare meaning crucify, which comes from the word crux or cross. Excruciating. Which is where Christian's tears come from. Jesus, his Savior, the only one who could free him from this terrible burden, faced excruciation for him. Then as he stood there, weeping, three angels show up. The first told him his sins were forgiven, the second removed his rags and gave him new clothes, and the third marked his forehead and gave him a roll with a seal, telling him to hold on to it and read it while he was on his way to the celestial city. Now if you're a Christian today, just pause for a moment and remember not only the cost of your salvation, but the results of it. Moved from guilty to innocent, dirty to clean, dead to alive, enemy of God to child of God, from a certain eternity in hell to a certainty of eternity in heaven. Second Corinthians 5, right? If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. Romans 8, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. In other words, all that guilt and shame and fear you feel, all your worry that you're not good enough to be saved, that you'll never be good enough to call yourself a Christian, that you deserve to feel miserable, that God is punishing you, that is not God. That is all your own baggage and Satan's horrible words. See, God declared you innocent, clean, perfect. He made you brand new. 
When he looks at you, he sees Jesus because you are in Jesus. You didn't do anything to earn your salvation, so there's nothing you can do to lose it. It was all done on the cross and is available to anyone who believes Jesus died for their sins and rose again and puts their faith in him alone. So you're forgiven, you're clean, and you're also marked. In the Old Testament, God marked his people in lots of ways. Circumcision, clothes, lamb's blood, and that continues in the New Testament. In the book of Revelation, you can go to chapter 7, chapter 14, God marks his people on their foreheads. Then later, in Revelation 13, Satan does what he usually does. He copies, he distorts what God has done by doing the same thing to his people. That's why Christians should stop wondering if credit cards and microchips and tattoos are going to be the mark of the beast, because that's not what this is about. Christians have an invisible mark of God, the mark of the Lamb, on their foreheads. Non-Christians have the invisible mark of Satan, the Antichrist, the enemy, on theirs. It's a symbol. It symbolizes that they've given their control of their spirit, of their heart, they've given their allegiance, their obedience, to the one who marked them. It's actually pretty awesome when you think about it. It's God's way of saying, this one is mine. They're my subject, in my kingdom, in my army, from my house, carry my name, are under my protection, and I will take care of them. That is pretty cool when you think about it. Okay, next week we're going to work on chapter 5, Christians Saluted by the Shining Ones, where we're going to meet Simple, Sloth, and Presumption. And that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you heard something interesting. Remember, you can find all the interesting links, more episodes, the contact me button, all my social media links, the link to the new private Discord server, and a bunch of other good stuff, like my free books, on the new and improved website at artofthechristianninja.com. Please join me on Twitch, twitch.tv slash ninja, on Sunday at 3pm for the live stream Q&A, Tuesday at 7 for a game night, and then Thursday at noon for the new Devos and Chill stream. That's where I give a little sermon, then we play a fun game together. If you appreciate what I'm doing here and you want to show support, there are a few things you can do. First, please, 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 please share, share, share. If you don't share it, no one sees it. The best thing you can do to support me is simply tell people what I'm up to. And second, if you want to go that extra mile, it would be amazing if you'd check out my Alice 3D printer business on Etsy, or click the donation button and give a one-time gift or a monthly subscription. My dream is to do this full-time, but I can only keep the ministry growing and the content flowing with support from listeners like you. Thank you again, have a great week, and I'll talk to you Sunday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time.